Well, good morning. My name is Blake, and I think uh, if you don't recognize me, we'll become friends later. I want to first thank you. Uh, you know, the song we just played was Give Thanks. We're going to thank you. Grateful to God at all times. I want to thank you for his kindness towards me through you that you may not be aware of. In fact, the thing you just did, the receiving of the offering, a portion of that goes into a fund that then supports 5,000 North American missionaries, of which I'm one of those, and other 5,000 international missionaries. So on behalf of all of them and our family especially, I want to thank you. We're grateful. You free us to... Um, be on the campus on a mission field. Let me give you a quick update uh, here and update there at Loma. Um, the university this last year through BSM, um, just a little indicator of what's been happening. Uh, we're pretty busy. We uh, had 52 students engaged in one-on-one discipleship during the year. And so it was a really good year for us. We're hoping to reap a lot of fruit from that this, this next fall. Um, Two exciting things are happening that you can be praying for. One is we're bringing on an extra staff person. His name's Charlie. He's a pastor's kid who um, kind of went his own way. God brought him back to his way. And, um, and Charlie's now preparing for, to be a pastor. So he'll begin seminary classes through, at Columbia through Southern Seminary. So I'm pretty excited for two things. One, to have another person um, engaged in discipleship, evangelism, but also to have a hand in preparing someone who will well, be a future shepherd, have care and oversight over a flock of people. So that's exciting and, and daunting in our end. The last thing I want to let you know about that we're pretty excited about and hopeful for is um, kind of a new phase in our ministry on campus, and that is uh, reaching international students, in particular um, kids from Saudi Arabia. I don't know how it's happened in God's providence. We just got connected with student after student after student who's from Saudi, and uh, what we've kind of realized is Delaware has the second largest Saudi population in the country of all schools and universities. It's over 260. And almost all of them get coffee within 300 feet of our building at this place called Saxby. So we feel like there's not a whole lot of other things to put together. We'll just, so just pray for us that we can, um, you know, we'll continue to take mission trips across the sea, send kids to Indonesia, send kids to the Philippines. But instead of spending $4,000 to send two kids for a summer, we might be able to have a 1,000 conversations for a $4 cup of coffee at a place with students. So uh, pray for us this year. And that's pretty convenient because today's text is Luke 18, verse 1 through 8. This is the parable of the persistent widow. I know you probably memorized this. You know, you probably didn't. Um, it's a good one, but it's not, uh, it's not right up there with like John 3.16 and Romans chapter 8 and that kind of thing. So persistent widow, let me first say this. This is a parable, and what we need to remember about parables when we're going to understand them is what they are. And a parable is a fictional story. It means the, the parable itself didn't happen. Now, what did happen is Jesus did say this. He did create this parable, create this story. He communicated it for a reason that Luke then records. But the events of the parable aren't necessarily true. It's a teaching technique. Usually, the technique is take two things, compare them, and then the rub, the difference, is the point. That's the parable. So, we'll unpack this together. Now, most parables are a little tricky. Uh, sometimes the main point's at the end. This one's super easy. This is kind of like parables for idiots. So that's why I'm bringing this one, not to you, that's why I'm bringing it. So, 
Um, verse 18, chapter 18, verse 1. And he told them, this is Jesus, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So if you're taking notes, today's sermon, the point is don't be a quitter in prayer. Don't give up praying. Don't give up. Let me just first kind of twist this around. Why would Luke record Jesus saying this? Why would Jesus need to say this? Well, because the people he was speaking to were quitters. They're prayer quitters. And they had the same fallen condition that you and I have. I mean, I don't know many of you personally. I know almost none of you prayerfully. But I have a hunch that you're like them. You might be a prayer quitter. And so this text today is pretty helpful, pretty important for us. Okay, first two characters. Verse two. And he said, in a certain city, there was a judge. That's our first character. Who neither feared God nor respected man. So, we got some description. We have a judge, person of authority, or a role in, the, in that community, in that city, who's supposed to disseminate justice. Okay? Things that are wrong, he's going to right them. Things that are uh, unequal, things that are um, stolen, things that are um, damaged, he, he's going to make someone make up for that. Okay? He's going to enforce the laws of the, the country, the city. But this one, this judge, doesn't fear God and doesn't respect man. Now, in their culture at that time, fearing God would have been the pinnacle characteristic to be a good judge. If I'm going to be able to judge rightly, see things correctly, I need to fear God. I need to be answerable, accountable to someone. This isn't really part of the sermon. Let me just give this to the side. Um, this is one of the critical things in my life and your life. If we begin operating where we are not accountable to anyone, okay, we're not under the authority of Jesus, okay, I'm not accountable to him, or the authority of the under-shepherds, so pastors, or, or under the, the care and oversight of um, close friends who might watch over our soul, if we're just off on our own thing and no one gets to know much about us or tell us what to do or correct or rebuke or encourage us, we're a lot like this judge. We're just living life completely on our own. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous to, to say you're following Christ and to do that. In fact, four chapters earlier in this same book, he has a lot to say about discipleship, so that, that doesn't work. So that's the judge. Next character, verse 3. And there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. So we have the judge, we have the widow. Now it might seem like this is a comparison, but it's not quite there yet. So she is, unlike the judge, she's helpless. There's no one to protect her, no one to provide for her. She's a widow. Okay, so she uh, has no husband, has passed away. We don't have any indication that she has any children to care for her, protect, provide, lead her. She's kind of on her own left to fend for herself. Now, this phrase here, kept coming, uh, we probably shouldn't see this as um, she kept bringing a case before the court. Okay. Bailiff. You know, case 1551. Widow Boulay. I'm not a prophet, so don't get, don't get nervous or anything. Um, 
The judge, I don't find for you, you're dismissed. Two weeks later, case 1844, you're back. We shouldn't see it that way. She's a widow, remember? Probably how we should see this is probably what you and I would do if we were a widow. And that is, I'll just try and talk to him. I'll beg him. So at the market, at the baker, in the street, wherever he is in a balanced society, she can run into him, bump into him. She wants justice. He can give it, and all she can do is beg. Verse 4. So for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. All right. So for a while, he just says, no. Woman, I can't help you. I heard your case. You have no case. You have no grounds. I don't, I don't, I don't find for you. Leave, just leave me alone. This, this is my home. Go away. I mean, for a while, refused. But because she kept bothering me, she had this relentless pursuit. And this text uses the word beat me down. In original language, this is, this is a, very similar to this, the phrase of, of blackening someone's eye. Just continually giving them agony. And so his original reason for not giving her justice, this is inconvenience, I don't do this, becomes the same reason why he eventually does. For his own comfort, his own pleasure. His own convenience. Verse 7. Verse 6. And the Lord said, Jesus says, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Okay, that he will give her justice. Verse 7. Here's the, here's the comparison. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? This is a rhetorical question. He's, he's answered it by his parable. Okay, we have unjust judge. We have the true and better judge, the just judge, the Lord God. So, of course, he will. To his elect, you know, we are not the widow. We're not unprotected, unprovided, unwanted. Ephesians says we're chosen by God. We were singing this song, he's calling us by name. We're adopted, child of the king, those who cry to him day and night. Don't see us necessarily as kind of relentlessly giving God an arm bar and twisting him and you must do what I want or I'm just going to keep bugging you. Rather, those who have access to his very presence and see that, God, you're the only one who can meet this need. I, I need you. And I'm going to keep crying out to you, depending upon you. I'm not yelling at you. I'm not pitching a fit. I'm just saying you're the only one who can do this. Now, Luke 14, four chapters earlier, Jesus is, Luke's recording Jesus talking about discipleship. If anyone you know, comes after me, I'm be my disciple. Compared to your love for me, your love for your family, your friends, your own life, it must be distinctly different. So much so that we call one love and one hate. You've got to really elevate me. Now, Kent Hughes, in his commentary on Luke, writes this. 
and connected to prayer. He says, we fall short of following Jesus, that is, when we spend more time in the car in one day, shuttling the kids to games and to lessons, than we do in one month praying for their souls. He says, that's a failure of following Jesus. That's not loving him or esteeming him. It's a life that reveals one who disproportionately loves their children over him. So we should pray because of our position before God. We should pray because he loves to do his will when he's asked for it. He does. I don't quite understand it. I couldn't give you a a formula for it. Let me try and describe it. When our our kids were younger, in fact, our first child, when he was... um, old enough to begin riding a bike. Um, his birthday's in the spring, so it's pretty convenient. Hey, this is, this is going to be the birthday gift this year. And so a couple months before, tried to start planning hints. Hey, wouldn't you like a bike for your birthday? No. Okay, so come back a couple weeks later. Now I've, I've been pointing out, hey, look at that kid. He's riding a bike. They're riding bikes. Look at that commercial. They have bikes. Bike store, you know, trying to bikeify him. What do you think, a bike? No, I already told you I don't want a bike, but what do you want? I don't know. Maybe some plastic animals. Plastic animals. It's a bike. So this goes on for a while until he finally says, I guess a bike would be all right. I'll get a bike. That was enough for me. I wanted to get him a bike. But I also wanted him to want a bike. Like, not completely, but in some way, that's how prayer works. God's longing to do something in your life, has planned it before the foundation of the world, and just wants you to be on board with it. And prayer is part of that process of you, your heart, begun getting in tune with his heartbeat about something. He wants you to want what he's about to do. Now, when this kid came around and was really pretty much wanting this bike, you know, birthday, he had like one little box. I thought you were getting me a bike. No, I never said I was getting you a bike. We were talking about a bike. No, I never said I'd get a bike. In the box, I think it was a note. Hey, go in the garage. In the garage, you know, it's a big monstrosity of paper. Tears through that, oh, I got a bike. And, you know, probably got on it and fell over and the rest is history. But I took joy in his joyful gratitude over what I had given him. And in a small way, it's a portion of how prayer works. God wants you to delight in what he's doing. Let me give you some examples of uh, prayer answered. I guess it's primarily connected with BSM. This first picture here, this is a guy's name is Kelvin Ramsey. And probably most of you don't know Kelvin. He works at the university. He's a deacon at Friendship Baptist, one of our sister churches. And um, he has, is also our faculty advisor. And he's been at the university for a long time. In fact, 10 years before I came to Delaware, um, he had been loosely connected with the campus ministry, praying for things. Um, and where he lives, he lives two blocks from the university, so he just walks to work. And where he walks from, he you know passes some uh, neighborhoods, and and one place he kept passing was where our, the current BSM building is now. In fact, ten years before 
the association gathered its resources to purchase this building. Kelvin had just been praying, walking by to work, from work. God, this would be a great ministry location. I mean, you know, he never like broke out oil and anointed the corners of the building or, you know, planted St. Joseph in the backyard or something. He never did any of that kind of stuff. Okay? He didn't write it on a post-it note, didn't plan to pray for this thing, didn't fast ever. Just going to and from work. But God uses his eyes to see something, pray for it, and then when he moves those 30, 40 feet, move on. And those 10 years seeding what God was going to do that none of us knew. And that is he was going to make a way for that building to become uh, used for ministry. And this is the building here that it, and it served us well. It was great. The, the, the group almost doubled that first year in part because we had some specific location. Um, we weren't just kind of some cult anymore. We never were a cult, but in people's psyche, if you got property, you're probably pretty legit. Now, at this place, um, that was in 2000. So 12 years later, God makes a way, an opportunity for uh, us to, us to be an association, sell the back portion to a developer who then would make a new one in the front. And this is the front of the new one. Now, the last one here was 1,800 square feet. This is 5,200 square feet. It's quite a bit bigger. The last one was a home converted. This is a, a building designed for ministry. So, um, multiplies what we're able to do on campus with students. God has always known this is going to happen. Kelvin was the only one who kind of cared for 10 years walking past this piece of property, faithfully praying. I can't tell you how much satisfaction and joy he has. He still walks by it every day to work. Pray for different things now. But knowing God, he's grateful. God, thank you for letting me have a part in what you're always wanting to do, making me want what you're wanting to do. This next picture is a kid named Chase. He's uh, the guy on the right. He's a fun guy, Chase Ross. And he's a believer who came to BSM, was a leader in a ministry for three years. And um, as we'd meet together each week, one thing we'd do is pray for, who are the non-Christians in your life that we can pray for, you'd have an opportunity to share the gospel with. And one was this guy named John. And John was a fellow student, another engineer. And John and Chase hit it off for a lot of the social reasons, but John really was bothered that Chase was a Christian. Because he liked him and thought he was you know, smart enough to be in engineering, but this is the dumbest thing you could do is believe these myths, believe these fairy tales. How can you, how can you really, not just believe it, but how can you uh, organize your life around it? And then... When he found out Chase tied and gave money, he blew a gasket. Are you kidding me? So John, they would, you know, every class together, they did homework together. And so John was kind of a, a constant antagonist against Chase. And so a lot of means became kind of, all right, well, let's answer John's latest attack of Christianity. So, you know, we're going through apologetics that year. And then one month, this is probably a year and a half into it, Chase says, I asked, hey, how's things going with John? Let's pray for him. He goes, things are a little different. What do you mean? Well, he's asking the same rude questions, but he's not doing it in a rude way anymore. What does that mean? I think he really wants to know the answer. Okay. So about two months later, Chase comes to my office. Hey, can we talk right now? It's pretty important. Okay, I guess I have a choice. And he goes, look, uh, John, I think he's a Christian. Hold on. What, What, John? You know. 
Crazy John. Oh, what do you mean? Why do you think he's a Christian? Well, because I, you know, I asked him all these questions, and he said yes to him. All right, what questions do you ask him? I asked him if he believed the Bible was true. He said yes. John did? Yeah. He's been reading it. Who gave him a Bible? I don't know, but he's been reading the Bible. And um, he, also, he also said he believed Jesus was God's son. He, be- he believed he could die for his sins. I'm like, how does he believe? I don't know. So I said, well, it sounds like a Christian to me. He goes, well, can you have lunch with him and make sure he's a Christian? I'm like, okay, like I have the Christian stamp of approval, so we have lunch and ask him all the same questions. And um, so I asked John, what happened? Well, you know, I've seen you at social stuff, and, and you're a uh, polite guy, but, you know, it was pretty clear you didn't really, you know, like Christians. He goes, all, all I can tell you is the things I used to hate are the things I treasure now. And I don't know what how it happened. I just think God changed me. What had been happening is we had to share in what God was always intended to do. I can't tell you. Look at the next picture here. This is John. I'll show you. Uh, he's the guy next to the tree. And... Um, he actually married the girl in the front in the blue and white stripe, Sarah, who actually works at BSM now. So John, who was our antagonist, is like a regular supporter of BSM. It's great. It's, it's not just great. It's great and ironically funny how God does this stuff. God all along knowing, you rude kid in this class, you're going to marry a girl who's going to run this very same ministry. And pray for other people from your tribe, the rude people, to come to faith in Christ. I see John a lot, and I often think about him coming to faith. And I'm just so glad I had a front row seat to that happening. So wield your powerful instrument of prayer in shepherding people, converting people. Let me ask this question. What about when God seems to not answer prayer? Okay, look, you know, I might be a quitter in prayer, but I do do some praying, and sometimes he's an answer. What about then? Let me give you this first little tidbit. This is from uh, a guy we call Grandpa Dave. He's just an old guy in our life, and uh, he's kind of a grandpa to our kids. This is Grandpa Dave's, his description. He says, when God doesn't answer prayer, he said, God is never late in answering prayer, never. He is rarely early, but he's always on time. And so you, you, just, you just might be ahead of him. Let's look at some scripture texts that might have something to say. We'll, we'll pause in Luke and go to James for real briefly. So James chapter 4. What James says is, maybe you're not really praying. Not really. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You're not really asking. You can't get what you want, so you're going to take it. Paul Miller, in his book about prayer, writes this. He says, if you're not praying, then you are quietly confident that either time or money or talent is all you need in life. And you'll always be a little too tired, a little too busy. But if, like Jesus, you realize you can't do life on your own, then no matter how tired you are, you will find time to pray. Verse 3. So maybe they're just not asking. Or verse 3, maybe you're asking wrongly. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, to serve a heart idol. So here's a little example. This morning, I don't know what happened, but I'm supposed to be here. I'm, I'm speaking today, right? So I'm supposed to be here 
you know, a little early. Make sure the microphone works and all the slides are happening and, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. But the time I, I usually try and get here is the time I looked at the clock at my house and said, is this clock right? So I can't confirm or deny if I broke any laws on the way here. But I was praying, God, could you make all these lights turn green? And all of them did. Um, a lot of them did. Was I doing that because... Well, I'll, I'll tell you what I did. So first I'm thinking, do I just want these things to turn green because I don't want this to look bad upon me? You know, how unprofessional. Show up here right before it starts or late. So reputation. I want to protect, protect my reputation, so let me get there. Teleport me. Or what I began praying is, um, God, I've, I've been tasked to give them your word so, so your, your sheep can be fed. Get me there. Not for me, my sake, but for your sake, your kingdom. That's a little subtle difference in how we can ask the same thing, make the lights turn green, with two different, two different things here. One is to serve myself. One is him. And I'll tell you, it really did change my attitude driving here. What about when God seems to answer No. I'm praying for something. He says no. What about when it's something that, I think he commanded this in the Bible, so I'm asking for it. He's saying no. How about something like, in your anger, don't sin. God, I'm praying. Something happens in my life I can't control. That's pretty common. I'm a human. I'm not you. And I'm frustrated. So don't prevent me from getting angry. But it keeps happening. It says reveal, Bill, here might be what the case is. You might be in what the Bible sometimes describes as a desert. In the desert, Paul Miller says, it's a, it's a difference between what I hope will be and what really is. And when that gap occurs, this is the desert. There's three, three ways of dealing with this. One is simply to deny it and say, it's going to be fine. I'll, I'll get there somehow. I'll manage. Um, kind of just sidestep suffering. So this causes me pain. You know what? It'll be fine. It'll get up there eventually. I'll just, it'll be, it'll be okay. I'm not praying, of course. Another one is determination. That's because of the shock. Things are not how I want them to be. And um, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to really buckle down. I'm really going to anchor down here. I'm going to, money's no object. Time's no object. Somewhere, somewhere, someone, some book knows how to fix this. And I will, I will mobilize all the prayer in the world to make this happen. Again, not trusting him, just your own power. And then there's despair. Despair is when you just kind of give up that this is ever going to close. And so, hope of what should be just drops down to what is. And two things happen here. Either you become cynical or you really grow. See, the desert, there's no way out. Um, and desert can be anything. The desert can be a loved one. The desert can be a chronic illness. The desert can be sin from your own foolishness. You could have married your desert. Joseph betrayed and forgotten in an Egyptian jail. Moses, an outcast in Midian for 40 years. The Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years. David running from Saul. Jesus, his father, the God the Father, turns his face on him. Many more examples. What Miller writes is that God takes everyone through a desert, and it is his cure for wandering hearts that are searching for a new Eden on their own. 
See, in the desert, we kind of slowly lose our grip on, we slowly give up the fight of having life our own way as we see it. Our wills become broken, and the things that used to give false life begin to die. The things that were my false saviors, they just begin to wither from nourishment. It's the same thing that happens when uh, we take youth away to a camp for a week, and there's you know, no TV, and somehow they survive. Or really more and more, the counselors go with them, the adults go with them. There's no television, so there's no news. And, and sometimes we're in places where there's like no internet, and so they can't even get the cell signal. So they, they don't know what happened with their sports team or the stock for seven days. And they come back breathing. In fact, they come back more alive. Because things like that get exposed as, as false rescuers, false saviors. Miller says, this suffering turns away these false selves that are created by cynicism or pride or lust, and, and you stop caring what people think. The desert is God's best hope for the creation of the authentic self. The desert is what sanctifies us. It's a, in the desert, things that used to be really important that aren't that big a deal would get put in their place. I have a friend who, um, in a home he grew up in, it was a nice place, a little on the museum-y side, and they had this one big rug in the front room that had this fringe, and, and one of his jobs was to comb the fringe pretty regularly, you know, make sure the fringe is all set. Um, but then when one of the babies, one of the grandkids, was in the hospital for a while, no one cared about fringe. That wasn't his job. Things that aren't a big deal in the desert get put in their rightful place. Psalm 63, verse 1. Just a couple of verses real quick here. Psalmist writes, God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. My soul, it thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Our longing, our craving, our hunger for God explodes when everything else is, is famished. And maybe it is that you cry out to God so long and so often about something, you begin to carve a deep rut between you and him where you just kind of naturally fall into prayer. This happened for me really that kind of thing happened to me the first time in college when um, the radio in my car broke and I didn't have enough money to fix it or replace it. And so I started to get places, started to go to work, started to go to class. And it gets really boring trying to sing your own songs. And so I just began praying. And it wasn't like, oh, the heavens opened up, the angels. No, it was kind of hard. And then... I never fixed I went, I got, a year, I got a new car a year later, or a new used car. Had a radio. I didn't use that thing for the first couple of weeks. I just got used to praying as I drove. Began carving a deep rut between me and God. Last text, 2 Corinthians. Paul's writing to them about himself here. He says, So to keep me from being too elated by a surpassing greatness of revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated, to starve out his heart idols. Three times I pleaded with the Lord that it should leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I'll boast all the more about my weaknesses 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So I'm in the desert. My grace is sufficient for you. And the last two verses. So for the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. In our weakness, in our desert, that's when Christ looks great. That's when he looks good in you. Matt Chandler, a pastor in Texas, describes it this way. He says that for a lot of things he's praying for, he keeps a view of if he's just piling up wood on a fire that's going to light someday. And so with his kids, he just tries to keep praying for them and instruct them, stacking up wood that hopefully one day God will ignite and they will pursue Christ relentlessly. The people who stack up wood, praying, giving instruction, encouragement, hoping that God will ignite this thing and, and, and their heart will change. And so in prayer, we're not doing nothing. Maybe what we're doing is just stacking the wood. Verse 8. Back to our original text. So Luke's recording Jesus. And this is his last question. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. God will. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find those who are trusting him in prayer? Not simply begging for desires, those who bloom in his presence, bloom in the desert. In the desert, we need the same thing we've always needed. That's the gospel. The same thing you needed to come to faith in Christ is what you need in the desert. You need him to live his life in you, Galatians 2. So for the Christian, return to a life of Christ alone. Trusting in him. If you're not a follower, but see your need, cry out to him. Let's pray together. Would you stand with me? (coughs) Lord God, in your wisdom, you incarnated. Jesus came to earth and spoke these words, and, and you've planned that we would hear them today. Lord, would you remuster our efforts and, and our thinking about praying? May, may for some in this room, it be the answer they've been looking for to particular desert or hardship. May others, it give them encouragement to, to keep seeding, keep stacking, keep praying and not lose heart. Father, we know you are going to accomplish all your will. We don't know when. We don't know how, but we know you will. And, and we know the joy of being a part of that. And so will you keep that joy set before our minds that we persist in prayer. And may we find in there that our burdens are light. We pray these things for your namesake. We pray them because we need you to change us to do them. May we find in you there and the all satisfying bloom. May we, may we bloom in a desert. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.